hear the word of God to you this morning. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat the dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food, until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, authoritative word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. You may be seated. I thought I'd start off with something familiar for you. Now, I got to tell you, it blesses me to hear my wife say that. Either that or she has no clue what I'm about to say. That old nursery rhyme, I think we all know it in this room, I would, I would imagine. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. What? All the king's horses and all the king's men. Couldn't put Humpty together again. Man, we know that one. And all, all we could say to that is, ain't that the truth? Think about it. That's exactly right. Think about it. Why can't we make our relationships work for crying out loud? And think about it. Why, why is it that the one relationship that God created between man and woman, that is the relationship of marriage, why is it? That that institution that was designed, think about it, to bring about intimacy, right, closeness, to bring about joy, to bring about happiness, is so often, think about it, the occasion for such emotional turmoil, misery, and pain. Ever notice that? God, what God designed to be such an incredible blessing has truly, in many respects, become a curse. On this side of glory. Well, Tony Evans, I remember where I heard this from. I almost thought I made it up. And then all the, you know, God sometimes kind of does a remember. I'm, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Tony Evans used to say this. I'll tell you why it's all messed up. Because we're Humpty Dumpty people living in a Humpty Dumpty world. Amen? That's why it's all messed up. Now, Adam's sin affected us as his descendants, in three ways. Now, I'm not going to have time this morning to delve into each of them, but I want to at least get you that framework so you know where we're coming from, where the Bible's coming from. The first way we inherited uh, sin from Adam is that we inherited original guilt. You know what that means? We're all guilty from birth. We already stand condemned because thanks a lot, Adam. You represented us. He was our covenant head, and as he fell... He brought us with him. 
So we fell into guilt. The second way that he was our representative is that we also inherit a sinful nature. That means that inclination that is against God, that goes against God, that's sinful, we have that nature within us as sons of Adam and as daughters of Eve, as it were, as C.S. Lewis puts it. So we have a sinful nature. So that means, how does, uh, I want to make sure I put this right. We aren't sinners because we sin. You're with me, right? We sin because we're sinners. And the last thing that we've inherited from Adam, at least, there may be more that I haven't thought about, but this third one we all know about because it's the dreaded thing that all of us hate in this room. Jesus hated it. It's called death. From dust we came and to dust we return because we sinned. Right? Wage of sin is what? It's death. But this morning in particular, as I mentioned, we're going to be very narrow in our focus as we have been looking at some of the broader context the last couple Sundays, we're going to look particularly at the sin's impact on the relationship, relationships between men and women, especially husbands and wives. In other words, how we went, think about this, from unconditional love and joyful submission, that's the way it was in the garden with no problem, but we went from that to the battle of the sexes. Didn't we? So we're going to take a look at this. The first Adam's fall into sin transformed marriage from a walk in the park to combat in the battlefield. Right? Right? Because we had a nice, the Lord coming in the cool of the day every day, and Adam and Eve just having a nice walk, you know, pulled from the different fruits of the trees of the garden. They were living it. They went from that to taking up arms. And unfortunately, against one another. And against God, as we saw last week in particular. So we're going to see two things that happen. The first thing is loving headship turns into forceful dominance. Whereas one, at one point, Adam just completely loved his wife as himself and led her in love. Now we're going to see there is this impulse to dominate in a sinful way. The second thing we're going to see, so only two points this morning is we're going to see that joyful submission turns into a desire to control. Whereas before, Eve had no problem submitting to such leadership. It, it was a, a non-thing for her. Now it's going to become a battle for control. And we're going to see this in the text. So the first thing we're going to look at is guys here. We're going to look at how loving headship turns into forceful dominance. Now, if you do uh, any kind of careful study of Genesis 3... The first thing that should strike you about this passage, especially when, it, when, you, when you see God's punishment for sin, the first thing that should strike you is that from verses 1 to verse 5, who's been the subject of, that, of those verses? Eve. It's been Eve and the serpent going back and forth for five verses. You with me? Adam's mentioned finally in verse 6 and very quickly. He's not mentioned, all it says is, um, she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he took an eight. That's all you read about Adam. But here's an interesting thing. After they sin, when God comes looking for them, who does he call to account? Adam. Adam. He goes, he takes a beeline, he says, Adam, where are you? And I think it's really important to see that. 
And that's why I wanted you, I spent a lot of time in Genesis 1 and 2 to point out from the text that although man and woman were created equal in the image of God with equal dignity, equal worth, equal intelligence, and some would argue smarter, right? That song, you know, why are the women smarter? But at the same time, God also made them with distinct roles. Men and women are definitely different. And God has an order to his creation order. Um, so in other words, the Apostle Paul wasn't making this stuff up. He wasn't pulling it out of air, the air. The foundation for that teaching is right here in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. So when he says the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, he's talking about these passages. I want you to see that. So we have distinct roles. Didn't mean that Adam was smarter. Didn't mean that he was better. Didn't mean that he was more competent at living. As a matter of fact, he needed help living. He couldn't do it on his own. It simply meant that from the very beginning, God had established his kingdom order. So this is what the Apostle Paul wrote. I'm going to quote it directly. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, Ephesians 5, 23. Now here's the thing. This runs so deeply against the grain of our modern world. Am I wrong? And that's why I need to just take a few moments to explain that this is indeed, and demonstrate that this is what the Bible teaches, because I'm telling you, this is an area that the devil has attacked with particular vengeance in our culture. Now, just so you know, it's always been an issue since the fall. So it's not like it's a new thing, but it's definitely coming to a more higher pitch in our culture than it has in the past. So if you look at Romans 5, for instance, and then again in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul is making that analogy between the first Adam, right? And then the second Adam is who? Jesus. Jesus. He makes it clear that we all sinned in who? In Adam. Now, if there was no distinction at all between male and female, if, if equality meant there were no role, difference of roles, then why wouldn't it say we sinned in Eve? Because she sinned first. So if it was that, then hey, man, women were equal and we all have the same roles, then it would have been we're sinners in Eve. But we're not. We're sinners in Adam. And trust me, guys, it's not something to be proud about. In case you get a little cocky. The point is, Adam was the head of not only the whole human race in that sense, but he was also the head of his wife, as we saw, where God held him accountable. And he had the ultimate responsibility to do what? To uphold the word of God in his home. Amen. And here's the interesting thing. Here's the thing that, that should break all of our hearts. Where's Adam when his wife is getting sweet-talked and bamboozled by the serpent under the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? The text tells us he was with her. At any, you know, here's the thing that always hits me. At any moment, he could have got up and says, Oh, no, you didn't. No, first of all, first thing is, I don't know why an animal's talking. That's freaky to begin with. But secondly, who you think you are talking to my wife like that? That's not, and then the third thing, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna try to diss my God by calling him a liar? Come on, honey, we're getting out of here. That's what a man would have done. Right. Just saying. 
You know, unfortunately, we know that he shirked his responsibility. He sat back passively on the sidelines and followed his wife's lead into sin and misery. And here's the thing. That's been our legacy, men, since this day. Since that day, excuse me. Advocating our responsibility. And instead, we're, we're passive. And we, we ask our wives to lead the way. And by the way, take the hit. You know, you lead the way. You pioneer, and I'll see what happens. Right? And there's a book. Haven't read it yet. You know, there, I, there's like two, two, there's two or three books. I'm going to tell you. There's two or three books on my shelf that once I read the title, I don't have to read the book. And this is one of them. It's called The Silence of Adam. That's the name of the book. And it's written to men. And I'm afraid to read it. No, no. But it's, it, what's, what's so important, you want to know what the other ones are? Well, I ain't telling you. <laughs> one of them is your God is too small. Yeah, I don't need to read that book. I know what that's saying. Yeah. But the third one, you'll have to ask me privately. No. Uh, but anyhow, um, that's what happens when you have interactive preaching, by the way. You know, you get this kind of, so it's vitally important to understand that this headship in the home, this is really important to understand, was not originally a source of struggle and pain, but an awesome blessing. Think about it this way. Work wasn't a curse until after the sin. After men, after we sin. And it's the same way with headship and, and submission. That there was no problem there. They were very happy together. But now what was meant to be an unmitigated blessing becomes a laborious, monotonous struggle. And that's what happens in the order of the creation in the home. The order that God created in the home. What was meant to be, think about it this way, I always love this, a beautiful dance between two equals where, yes, the guy leads, but it would have been a beautiful dance, right? Each playing their own part willingly, happily, with great joy and freedom, it was turned into a war of the wills. Look, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. You didn't think I was going to not use another Chronicles of Narnia thing, did you? But this is a good one, though. This is in his book, The Horse and His Boy. They're all good ones. And he says this, Aravis also had many quarrels, and I'm afraid even fights with Kor. But they always made it up again, so that years later, when they were grown up, they were so used to quarreling and making it up again that they got married so as to go on doing it more conveniently. Wow. Isn't that good? That's good. You know, my, my wife will often say, you know, we never fight. And I'm like, what are you kidding me? I said, the secret to our marriage is we always fight. Because well, that's a whole other topic for another sermon. But because we fight in a way that is not destructive, but that's actually um, works our differences out. We don't hold things in. We don't bottle them up. That's what I'm talking about. But anyway, I digress. But that's okay. That was free marriage advice. I mean, we'll go over another time. But notice, we're going to take a look, we're going, to, we're going to zero in right here in verse 16, and I'm really only going to be able to focus on the second half. That, that's how particular we're going to get. But look, look what God wrote, um, said to the woman when it came time for him to call her to an account for what she had done. He says, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Now, as, as I said, I don't really have to preach on that one, do I, ladies? And not only that, as a guy, I ain't going to say too much. Because I kind of, when my wife, you know, gave birth to Caleb, I'm like, whoa, wow. 
I admire that woman. <laughs> How she did that, I don't know. That was like miraculous. But anyway, but the second one we're really going to look at. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now we have to see here, I'm going I'm to look at just the, first we're going to look at the man's part actually, I believe, right? Yeah, where it says, your desire will be for your husband but he will, and he will rule over you. Now notice this, what was once loving leadership with the husband tenderly cherishing and taking the lead in their mutual calling of working and subduing the rest of the God's creation for his glory and their own good now becomes what? Domineering rule. Becomes something ugly. Let me put it in starker terms. Maybe this will help you grasp it. Servant leadership, remember Jesus, servant leadership, Becomes what? Arrogant rule. But notice, this is, the Bible here is not saying this is the way it should be. Okay, It's saying that it's, a, it's simply a fact of life after the fall. It will always be a sinful impulse and sinful man to domineer in that way. To rule over in a harsh way. That's why later on, by the way, what does Paul have to say to husbands? Husbands, I, I quoted it earlier for our prep for worship. Love your wives and what? Do not be harsh with them. Because unfortunately, we have that impulse, that sinful nature, which is so wicked. Leupold, uh, the, Luther the um, Lutheran commentator I really like, says this about Eve. She sought to control him by taking control into her own hands and even by leading him on in the temptation. As a result, her penalty is that she shall be the one that is controlled. It's painful. How far we have fallen. Now listen, you don't have to go far. I don't have to preach too long to find illustrations of men abusing women of husbands who instead of cherishing and nourishing and protecting their wives are guilty of being the very ones victimizing them. Right? I don't need illustrations of that. We know it's a sad fact. We see it too often. Let me put it this way. When we see husbands barking out the orders, ignoring their wives' input, their feelings, and constantly throwing around the fact, I love this one, I'm the head of this house. You can be sure that this is not a proper and it's not a godly application of what Paul says in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5. But instead, it's a result of God's curse upon sin. And by the way, if you've got to keep insisting you're the head, what does that mean? So loving headship turns into forceful dominance. But now we're going to look at how each for the other becomes a desire to smother. Now we're going to take a look at the woman. Your desire, will, your desire will be for your husband. He will rule over you. Now, this is a little tricky because uh, in the original Hebrew, the, the word for your desire, the word desire there, is only used a very few times in the Old Testament. And if we just read it in the English translation, it, it would just look like your desire will be for your husband. In other words, well, you know, you're going to desire intimacy with your husband. But I want to tell you why it can't mean that. Because before the fall, she had a desire for her husband. There's nothing, no curse on that. I mean, that's a good thing when a wife has a desire for Can I get an amen? Yeah. So that ain't the cuss. 
The curse here is different. And the way we find the key to this is the word is used again only in the very next chapter of Genesis. So that's a good place to go if you want to find out what this word means. And it's in connection when God is rebuking Cain who just killed his brother. And this is what God says to Cain. Sin is crouching at your door. Here's the word now. It desires to have you, but you must master it. So in other words, look at Genesis 3. Your desire will be to dominate. I mean, basically this is what it's saying. Your desire to dominate your husband, you will have that desire, but he will rule over you. It's a sad, cyclical thing. David Atkinson explains it this way. The woman is told that her sexual desire will become a grasping urge, perhaps to manipulate her husband for her own satisfaction. But then we read of the man that he shall rule over you. This is not a divine prescription of what should be, but a description in the fallen world of what will be. Now, I know, I don't know if you're like me, but if, if you've been listening to this and you've really been thinking deeply about it, you should be saying, how depressing. Right? On both ends. If this is how it is between a husband and a wife after the fall, maybe I'd be better staying single. Well, you know, the disciples said that to Jesus. You remember that? And he said, good point. He who can accept this, what? Should accept it. So in other words, there are some people who are called to singleness. That their call in life, and it's a valid calling just as marriage is, is to, just to serve the Lord in a single state. Amen? Amen? Our Lord puts his stamp of approval on that. But as Paul says, not everybody has that gift. 1 Corinthians 7, Right? As a matter of fact, the majority of us, are, most of us, are called to a life of marriage uh, in general. But the neat thing here, and this is where I'm, hopefully it's going to start picking up some encouragement, it's not all doom and gloom in Genesis 3. Praise the Lord for that. Amen. Now, by all rights, it could have been. God could have left us there. We would have deserved it. He would have been completely just in giving us what we deserved. And simply, he would have been a good and a just God who keeps his word. The day you eat of it, you will die. End of story. God is good. We're the sinners. Amen? Amen. But God knew that there was no way he could grant mercy unless he made a way that he could show mercy and justice at the same time. That's found in Genesis 3.15. When God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, speaking to the serpent, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. In effect, I want you to see here what our gracious, holy, and good God is saying. He's saying to the devil, you know this little alliance you think you achieved between you and the woman? I'm screwing that up. All the days of your life, there's going to be enmity. And here's the interesting thing. A man born of her, that's right, is going to crush your head. In other words, there was the first Adam, and he brought us into this mess. God's going to send a second Adam. He's going to be born of Eve, I mean of woman. And he's going he's to bring us back into a right relationship with God and the beauty here, a right relationship one with another. 
So you know Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All, all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. That's actually accurate. But what the, what the story doesn't go on to tell you is, the king can. Amen. No, all of his men can't. All of his horses can't. But the king can. And the king said, I'm going to become one of you. And what first Adam failed to do, I am going to do perfectly to bring you through my blood and my sacrifice back to the Father and back to loving leadership and loving submission. So if I was going to preach a whole second sermon right now, I see you getting nervous. I'm going to give you the theme and points, and I'm only going to be able to outline real quick. The second Adam's act of righteousness transforms marriage from destruction contention into a model of redemption. Isn't that awesome? And instead of forceful dominance, it turns into loving leadership. And instead of fierce opposition, it turns into respectful submission. But I want to tell you something. Only Jesus could bring that about. One more C.S. Lewis quote, and it's not from the Chronicles. Relax, relax. He's speaking to adults here, not kids like me. He says, this headship then, speaking of the men's role, is most fully embodied not in the husband we should all wish to be, but in him whose marriage is most like a crucifixion, whose wife receives most and gives least, is most unworthy of him, is in her own nature least lovable. In other words, Jesus puts us back together again and as recipients of his sacrificial, redemptive love for us shown on the cross, we find that men, he turns our hearts back to our wives and gives us our own cross-shaped love for her. Amen. Listen, men. How many of you want to see your wives pushed down? degraded, feeling worthless. Isn't your greatest des desire to see her reach her, most, her best potential under the Lord of glory? Well, guess what? There's only one way to that, and that's through a cross. And that means you put her before yourself. Somebody said that somewhere. You know, there's something about, you know, being equal with God. He did not consider that to be thought, but what did he do? He became the form of what? A servant. To the point of what? Death on a cross. So that his people could be lifted up. That's what a man is. That's what's putting your big boy pants on. It's time, men. Because in our culture, we do have to ask the sad question, where are the men? Amen. Not just men, but men of God. Who say, it ain't about me. It's about my king, about my woman. If God's given me kids, kids. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. When we receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, what happens? We no longer live simply to please our own selfish desires, but instead we do what? We live to please him who died and rose again. For us and we submit to his will for our lives 
You know, I often hear preachers exhort single women to make sure the guy they're considering marrying is, is worth, worth submitting to, someone they feel comfortable submitting to. And that's a good word. But I got a better word, and it's for the guys. How about making sure you're the kind of guy that's worth being submitted to? That's the question. And I want to tell you, there are times, there are times, because I'm, I'm a sinful man, there are times I look at my life and I'm like, I wish someone else would have married her. Because she deserves better. She deserves better. But I'll tell you what, thank you so much. But on the other hand, it's also true. Yeah, and that, that's the other thing. I know you're joking, but you know what? What is a real man? A real man is someone who loves his wife. Puts her first. That's right. You know, and sometimes, man, one more thing, then I'll get to wives. You know, you think about things that are, that are said on the deathbed. Right. And they seem to be real powerful because the person's dying, you know, it's their last minute. And you could just hear, uh, I was thinking about this when we were praying and I was crying already. Thinking about saying what I would want to say to my wife if I had the opportunity is, I'm so glad you married me. Amen. But the question is, why don't we say that every day, men? Don't wait until your deathbed. Let your woman know. That she's the gift that God has given you. And I'd, you marry her another million times if you had the chance. So wives, I'm going to get to wives now so I stop this crying stuff. Because I don't cry too much about wives. Usually I get yelled at when I'm talking about it, but I'm going to do it anyway. When wives say, Lord, what would you have me to do to honor you? This is what the Lord says. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now notice, it's a complete reversal of the sinful inclinations of fallen human nature. And only the love of Jesus can work so deeply in a woman's heart to deeply transform her in such a way into her very affections that she would be willing to, sit to a, submit to a flawed, imperfect man, but because she loves Jesus. You know, I remember I read, um, I was listening to some Tony Evans sermons on marriage. Woo! If you think I'm forceful, go read, listen to some of his stuff. And I was looking, I can't help myself. You know, you got to look at the comments at YouTube. I had to look at the comments. And this one, one woman said, I, that's why I'm never getting married. There ain't no way I'm submitting to any man except for Jesus. You know, my first thing is, well, good luck with that. Unless you're called to singleness, and that's fine. But here's the thing. If you're really, especially if you're thinking about being a wife or if you are a wife, if you're in submission to Jesus, then guess what he tells you to do? Submit to your husband. You know, you could go to all the Bible studies you want, praise the Lord all you want, talk all the Christian jargon you want, and if you ain't respecting your man, then you ain't respecting your Lord. Because it is true. If there's one thing men need in a relationship, it's respect. And we may not get a lot of respect in the world, we may not get a lot of kudos in the world, but we need our wives to say, you're worthy of respect. That's right. 
So what's the antidote to the battle of the sexes, the struggle of, for control and dominance? Submission and obedience, listen, to a loving and a merciful and a good Lord. Amen. When you're in submission to him, then he directs. He says, look, you've been trying to do it. Look, the world tries to do it in its own way. How are they doing? Not too good. So God says, how about trying it my way? Just, just give it a good shot. Jimmy Evans says, the best marriage in the world is two servants in love. The worst marriage in the world is two masters in love. Ain't that good. All right, just a couple more minutes, we're going to close. But I want to say this, because I don't think we often think of this. We know that the impetus for the man to love his wife sacrificially is what? Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Can I get an amen? amen? But what you might not know is that's the same impetus for women to the wives to submit to husbands. I bet you didn't see this. In 1 Peter 3, you know when Peter says, wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands? Well, remember I always tell you, when it says, in the same way, well, then you've got to go looking back. What In what way? Well, if you look at the context, I'm going to read it in full. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. For by his wounds you have been healed. In other words, your husband might not be worthy. But, that, but guess what? The people Jesus died for weren't worthy either. And just as Jesus when they hurled the insults, he didn't insult back. When your husband is a clod, and I know us husbands can be that too often, Amen. you kill him with kindness. You show him the love of Jesus. And, and, and I won't get into all what Peter says about not preaching to him, but your life eventually is going to conquer them. <laughs> Even if they don't obey the word, after a while they're just going to say, I can't do this anymore. The Jesus in you is too strong. Where do I sign along the dotted line? Here's the interesting thing. That is the key, not just to marriage, the Lord's sacrifice on our behalf as, as a model, but it's the key, guess what, to the entire Christian life. It's Christian jiu-jitsu. That's what it is. Mark 8.35, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will what? Save it. Lay down your rights. It's, uh, that sounds pretty counterintuitive, doesn't it? But you lose your life, guess what ends up happening? You save it. You find it. What's true in the Christian life is true in the Christian home. Martin Luther once said this. We'll close with this. Let the wife make the husband glad to come home. And let him make her sorry to see him leave. May God grant us marriages that reflect that so that people would see the model of Jesus in his church and want to join us.
in the kingdom of God. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for this word that um, in our sinful nature is not always easy to hear. But we know it's your plan. It's your design. And you made us not to fight for our, white, our rights, not to push one down so we could ourselves move up, but rather you made us so that we would lovingly sacrifice and lift up the other, each for the other, Lord, to reach their potential for the kingdom and for you. And so, Father, grant us the grace as we trust in Jesus to reverse the curse. And Lord, we do pray for husbands, for husbands-to-be. We pray, Father, that through the grace of the second Adam, we could be the men that you've called us to be. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.